Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in a true context in a weekly podcast. I'm going to start episode 3 with a story about European Union and George Soros, both of which I mentioned in the previous episode. I've been talking and writing for years about a global elite that number less than 1% of the global population and their sinister agenda for humanity. And George Soros is a massive frontman for this elite, which is why I'm surprised that he's made the news. He's, he's become very wealthy, and one of the ways he's done that is to bet on currencies that he knows as an insider, an elite insider, are going to fall. And he makes a fortune from the downfall of the economy of countries. And he's been manipulating behind the scenes politically and in other ways for decades now. He's got a history of funding people's revolutions in countries where the agenda is to bring about regime change. He had organisations that moved in on the Wall Street protests in 2011 to redirect it, to get those people to call unknowingly for aspects of the global agenda. Organisations like moveon.org and 350.org. He also funds political correctness-obsessed progressives who are campaigning unknowingly for the world to change in ways that suit the global agenda. George Soros is a Hungarian-American investor, business magnate, and he has become very successful, not least because he knows what to invest in. Because when you're connected to the elite, then you know when a stock or a commodity is going to go up or down. It's very easy to become rich when you're in that situation. And he uses money that he makes to fund organisations and initiatives to serve the agenda. Most recently, trying to block Brexit. And the story is in the Daily Mail. Fury over billionaire George Soros's plot to sabotage Brexit. The man who broke the Bank of England is set to pour more cash into the campaign that threatens to bring down Mrs May. George Soros was told to butt out last night after it emerged the billionaire's bankrolling efforts to keep Britain in the EU. Senior Tories raised the alarm after the American financier confirmed he had donated more than £700,000 to groups working to water down or block Brexit. Mr Soros famously bet against Sterling on Black Wednesday in 1992, earning him £1 billion and the nickname The Man Who Broke the Bank of England. The fiasco cost taxpayers £3.3 billion. Best for Britain, which has received £400,000 from Mr Soros, admits its campaign for a new referendum could cause the government to fall. The group should hang back to clash, according to Ian Duncan Smith. The former Conservative leader said it was wrong for foreign plutocrats to undermine democracy in Britain. Lord Lamont, a former Tory Chancellor, said George Soros is a brilliant financier, but he should stick to finance and stay out of British politics. Conservative MP Henry Smith said Mr Soros should butt out. As Downing Street insisted Britain will leave the EU in March next year, even if MPs vote down a divorce deal, Best for Britain co-founder Gina Miller, who has since quit the group, said it had become undemocratic. Well, that's rich coming from Gina Miller, given that she's attempted to block Brexit before now, and she leaves the group because she says it's become undemocratic. I mean, irony's not lost, is it? Its leader said ditching the this is best for Britain's leader said ditching the referendum result would be like abandoning a wet holiday in Cornwall. 
Mr. Soros was said to be so angry at the criticism that he was considering a further six-figure donation. See, when you're working to bring about the agenda, money is no object. It's interesting how there's always money for war, but there's never enough money to help homeless people and uh, people who desperately need money. It emerged that his money could be funding six UK organisations, including a parliamentary group dedicated to watering down Brexit. And if George Soros wants anything, then the elite want it. So that is enough of a reason on its own for Britain to leave the European Union. David Davis condemned EU threats to punish Britain if it stepped out of line during a transition period. Cabinet ministers agreed to pursue an ambitious trade deal with Brussels that would allow the UK to diverge from its rules. Best for Britain made a presentation to six Tory donors at Mr Soros's Chelsea home this week, the Daily Telegraph reported. They were told the group aims to pressure MPs into voting down a Brexit agreement negotiated by Theresa May in the autumn. A document circulated to those present said if they were successful it is likely to trigger a new referendum or election. It added we must prevail decisively so reassuring Europe that our return will be permanent. The group which is expected to launch a mass advertising campaign next month said it would use guerrilla marketing tactics. It said its aim was to wake the country up and assert that Brexit is not a done deal, that it's not too late to stop Brexit. None of the Tory donors at the presentation are thought to have pledged any money. Mr Soros's donations were revealed yesterday. Tory MPs last night said Mr Soros, who was born in Hungary, had no right to try to undermine the result of the largest democratic exercise ever undertaken in Britain. Mr Duncan Smith said, however this is dressed up, George Soros is interfering in the British political system. I do have a problem with people taking money from wealthy non-British citizens to undermine the democratic process in this country. Again, classic hypocrisy. Ian Duncan Smith is someone who is known for being behind the crushing of the poor in this country financially. And he then has the nerve to say, I do have a problem with people taking money from wealthy non-British citizens to undermine the democratic process in this country. He obviously doesn't have a problem taking money from British citizens. They should give it back, he says. If they can't raise the money in this country, then they should not be doing it. Henry Smith said George Soros has never been a friend of Britain's best interests. As a US citizen, he should butt out of telling the UK they should remain under Brussels' yoke. Serious questions need to be asked as to how a foreign national could be funding a British political campaign. Jacob Rees Mogg, a leading Conservative Eurosceptic MP, said the revelations underlined the need for Brexit supporters to keep making the case to leave the EU. It is quite clear there is a lot of money behind the continuing Remain campaign and a lot of establishment support for overturning Brexit. We must keep making the arguments that Britain will be better off out of the EU. One pro-Brexit minister said Remain forces were trying to demoralise the British public and delay Brexit in the hope of overturning it. Tory MP Peter Bone added this is more evidence of an establishment push to overturn the referendum result. It is being run by people who take the view they know better than the British people and that the people who voted for are stupider than they are. That is the complete reverse of the truth. No one should underestimate the effort they are putting in. This is a significant push being orchestrated in secret and bankrolled by very wealthy individuals. No one should think that winning the referendum guarantees Brexit will be delivered. The Prime Minister's official spokesman said Mr Soros was entitled to fund political campaigns, but he insisted that Mrs May would not be deflected from her pledge to respect the referendum and leave Britain out of the EU next year. He confirmed that the Commons vote this year would be a question of deal or no deal, adding the PM's position is clear. The country voted to leave, that is what we are going to deliver and there will not be a second referendum. 
Sources at Best for Britain yesterday denied claims that the group is operated in a shadowy manner, saying it had always been clear about its aim of stopping Brexit. I myself wouldn't rule out a second referendum. I'm not saying there's going to be one, but I wouldn't rule it out myself. As well as running its own campaign, the group is planning to fund other anti-Brexit organisations, including Open Britain. It also funds the all-party parliamentary group on EU relations, which is working to water down Brexit in Parliament. Prominent members include former Tory Minister Anna Soubry and former Labour Cabinet Minister Lord Adonis, who has pledged to sabotage Brexit. Mr Soros has spent millions promoting democracy movements around the world through his Open Society Foundation. In a statement last night, the Foundation said its grants to anti-Brexit campaigns were in line with its worldwide mission to build vibrant and tolerant democracies whose governments are accountable to their citizens. Hypocrisy again. The group's president, Patrick Gaspard, added a fundamental principle of open societies is that people get to decide how they are governed, knowing exactly what they stand to gain or what they stand to lose. Miss Miller said the public had a right to know who was backing Best for Britain. Lord Malik Brown, who chose the group, told the BBC that MPs should ignore the referendum result and vote down whatever deal Mrs May secures with Brussels. He suggested that reversing the referendum result because of fears the economy would suffer was comparable to simply changing holiday destinations because of the weather. He said, it's like being told, let's go to Cornwall for a beach holiday and it's going to be sunny and it rains every day and you're allowed to change your mind. There are a lot of people out there terribly frustrated growing in numbers, so we're putting together a campaign which is actually democratic in its funding too. It's got some big donors, including, I'm very proud to say, George Soros, but also thousands of small donors as well. He said his goal was to mobilise public opinion in favour of Remain in order to bring that change in public opinion to bear on Parliament when it has the meaningful vote on Mrs May's Brexit package sometime at the end of this year. Oh, so they respect the will of the people then? He claimed the referendum had betrayed British democracy. No, it's people like Lord Malik Brown and George Soros who are betraying British democracy. And urged MPs to ignore the result, adding, I wish MPs would take responsibility for this and would be willing to vote on their conscience and their knowledge of the issues and then face their electors at the next election. He laughed off claims he was trying to subvert democracy and insisted he was trying to empower it instead. And there's just another section here in this article which says, Who are best for Britain and what do they want? Best for Britain is a campaign group dedicated to moderating and ultimately reversing Brexit. It was launched by Gina Miller, the former model who successfully challenged the government in court over Article 50 to encourage anti-Brexit tactical voting at the election. Miss Miller left the group soon after the election of former Labour Minister Mark Mallet Brown took over as chairman. The group is actively fundraising for its efforts to frustrate Brexit, as well as big money donations from people like George Soros. It runs crowdfunding, including a new campaign to stand up for free speech, but not the will of the people, it would seem. It urged MPs to vote against the flagship Brexit withdrawal bill on campaigns to protect universities from what it describes as a right-wing witch hunt. The group draws cross-party support, frequently issuing statements from MPs including Daniel Zeichner from Labour, Tom Brake from the Liberal Democrats and Green, Caroline Lucas. The board includes former Olympian Stephen Peel, economist Anatoly Kaletsky, businessman Clive Cowdery, while the CEO is activist Eloise. As I said in the previous episode of pay-per-view the elite are desperate to stop brexit i don't believe they thought it was going to happen in the first place but now they've got to find some way of stopping it happening or at least as i said last time salvaging as much of britain's membership of the european union as they can i don't know which way brexit is going to go but we need to keep a watch on brexit and keep the pressure on to ensure that we get the brexit that people voted for
rather than this diversion that they're trying to wrangle now. Just going back to George Soros, he's 87 years old. Isn't it interesting how these elites seem to live so long? Because they don't get the same treatment that the rest of us get. And I talked last time about a depopulation agenda. And that brings me on to the next subject I'm going to talk about today. This is in the Daily Mail. Gender-bending chemicals found in plastic and linked to breast and prostate cancer are found in 86% of teenagers' bodies. Almost 90% of teenagers have gender-bending chemicals from plastic in their bodies, according to a study. Bisphenol A, BPA for short, is found in plastic containers and water bottles, on the inside of food cans and in till receipts. The chemical, used since the 1960s to make certain types of plastic, mimics the female sex hormone oestrogen and has been linked to low sperm counts and infertility in men as well as breast and prostate cancer. A study by the University of Exeter, whose researchers tested urine samples from 94 teenagers, found 86% had traces of BPA in their body. Experts fear it is all but impossible to avoid the chemical given the widespread use of plastic packaging for food. The study's co-author, Professor Lorna Harris from the university's medical school, said most people are exposed to BPA on a daily basis. In this study, our student researchers have discovered that at the present time, given current labelling laws, it is difficult to avoid exposure by altering our diet. In an ideal world, we would have a choice over what we put into our bodies. At the present time, since it is difficult to identify which foods and packaging contain BPA, it is not possible to make that choice. The European Chemicals Agency last year reclassified BPA as a substance of very high concern because of its probable serious effects on human health. I've come across BPA over the years and something else I've come across over the years is that when an official source says something is probably harmful, many times you can get rid of the probably. Used to harden plastics, it has been linked to type 2 diabetes and heart disease as well as declining male fertility. Although it is found in teal receipts, sunglasses and CD cases, the main way people are exposed is through plastic packaging whose chemicals leach into food. As well as giving urine samples, the teenagers filled out food diaries. Even when they were told to avoid BPA in their diet for a week, there was no measurable fall in the chemical within their bodies. This has been blamed on the widespread use of the chemical in food packaging, which the Daily Mail has highlighted in its Turn the Tide on Plastic campaign, launched in November and backed by the head of the UN's environmental programme. The amount of plastics that are gathering in the oceans is incredible when you look at it, especially with what are called microplastics. I've seen articles in the mainstream media about that, and it's affecting marine life and also microplastics are used in cosmetics. Participants told researchers almost everything is packaged in plastic. One added, I found it really hard to know what foods I could eat. There is never a guarantee it is BPA free. Foods that appear safe because they are not sold in plastic packaging may still contain ingredients which have been exposed to the dangerous chemical. Highly processed products and fast food are believed to be a particular risk. Professor Tamara Galloway, lead author of the research, said we found that a diet designed to reduce exposure to BPA including avoiding fruit and vegetables packaged in plastic containers, tinned food and meals designed to be reheated in a microwave and packaging containing BPA had little impact on BPA levels in the body. 
Previous research has shown people risk higher of exposure if they repeatedly use plastic bottles containing BPA because of wear over time and if they heat up plastic tubs containing the industrial substance in the microwave. While BPA is removed from the blood by the kidneys within hours, recent studies show it can stay in the body for up to 43 hours, suggesting it builds up in a person's fat. Although it's classified as an endocrine disruptor, meaning it can interfere with the hormone systems of mammals, the European Food Safety Authority maintains humans' low exposure to the chemical is not harmful. Endocrine disruptors is something I've come across over the years as well. Fluoride is an endocrine disruptor. Responding to the latest study, published in the BMJ Open Journal, the British Plastics Federation, said BPA is not found in most on-the-go water and soft drinks bottles. A spokesman said the British Plastics Federation supports the conclusions of the EFSA that, at current exposure levels, plastics containing BPA pose no consumer health risks for any age group. Hidden menace that's even in teal receipts. You might not have heard of BPA, but it's everywhere. It's a synthetic chemical which is a building block for the clear plastics found in things like drinking bottles, CDs and DVDs and plastic plates and cutlery. It's also the basis for the epoxy linings and metal food cans and is even found on the cash register receipts you're given at the shops. The problem with BPA is that it disrupts the normal hormonal processes that regulate the body. In particular it mimics the female sex hormone estrogen and has been linked to health problems ranging from obesity to cancer, potentially even when we are exposed only to small amounts. Our hormones control most major bodily functions, such as reproduction, development, behaviour and even intelligence, so it's vital they remain in balance. But experts fear that BPA, an imposter in the body which goes into the bloodstream and imitates natural hormones, can knock hormones out of kilter. For that reason, they can wreak long-term havoc on our health, especially among the vulnerable. Children and pregnant women are particularly susceptible to damage from ingesting the BPA chemical because they have vast amounts of growth and developmental hormones coursing through their bodies. Worryingly, researchers have made strong associations between exposure to BPA when we are young and changes in behaviour, including disrupted brain development in children along with increased probability of childhood asthma. That said, the impact of early exposure to hormone-disrupting chemicals like BPA may not become apparent until much later in life. It can even affect future generations because it can have a damaging effect on female reproduction and has the potential to affect male reproductive systems. A large number of scientific studies have associated BPA with numerous health problems including early puberty, obesity, infertility, the inhibition of insulin, hyperactivity and learning disabilities. It has also been connected to a possible increased risk of breast and prostate cancer, heart disease and type 2 diabetes. Normally, if we were aware something could pose such a threat to our health, we would go to great lengths to avoid it. But BPA is so ubiquitous that that's virtually impossible. Researchers surmise that people all over the world of all ages are likely to have a measurable amount of BPA in their blood, urine or body tissue. Several government studies have detected BPA in large portions of the population, including 93% of the US population aged 6 and older, and 99% of the population in Germany aged 3 to 14. 99%! This new study into the high number of teenagers with BPA in their digestive system serves only to underscore that concern. 
We are most exposed to BPA through our diet. It leaches out polycarbonate products such as food containers and large water containers, as well as from the epoxy lining of aluminium and steel cans used to package pretty much any can of food or drink you can imagine, from tin tomatoes and baked beans to beer and fizzy drinks. The leakage from these products is made worse when the packaging contains acidic or oily foods such as lemon and tomato. It is also exacerbated by high temperatures. This means that when you handle receipts, it comes off on your fingers and is absorbed deep enough into your skin that it can't be washed off. And don't think you can use a hand sanitizer to wash it off. The chemicals in them can actually increase by up to 100 fold the skin's absorption of BPA. In a recent study, researchers found that when people held tear receipts immediately after using a hand sanitizer, BPA was transferred to their hands and then onto chips which they then ate. This combination of BPA going into the body, through the skin and in the mouth led to a rapid and dramatic increase in the BPA level in their blood and urine. So the best advice is to refuse cash register receipts unless you absolutely need them and don't let children touch them. If you do have to handle them, wash your hands with soap and water as soon as possible after touching receipts. Most worryingly, scientists have found that BPA can be harmful to humans at levels well below those considered safe by government regulatory bodies. Something I've come across over the years, again, is that what are called safe levels. They're not actually safe levels. They're levels at which the toxin or the chemical, etc., can have the effect, the intended effect, if you look deep into the shadows where this is coming from, without the effects becoming too obvious for too many people. That's what safe levels are. In October last year, the EU banned BPA and packaging for products aimed at infants and children up to three years old, which extends the 2011 EU ban on BPA in baby bottles. But banning it in baby bottles and baby food containers ignores the fact that BPA is in so many other products that surround us every single day. You might pride yourself on always buying water bottles, for example, with a label that says BPA free, but don't get too excited. Given the public distrust of BPA, manufacturers have been replacing it with other chemicals from the diverse bisphenol family. Substances with names such as bisphenol AF, bisphenol B, bisphenol C, E, F and S. The names are similar for a reason. Their chemical structures are practically identical and research has shown that many such replacements also exhibit hormone disrupting activity. I talked in a previous episode and in the pilot episode about the plan for a cone of the human population, a massive cone, and it's no coincidence I would suggest that we have a chemical widely used that affects fertility and mimics the female sex hormone oestrogen and has been referred to as a gender bending chemical and also I've talked in both episodes of pay-per-view about the agenda to bring an end to sexual procreation and the end of gender as we've known it up to this point this is why we've got this focus on transgender all over the place, in schools, in the media, in sport. I say it's no coincidence that both of these 
BPA onslaught and the focus on transgender is happening at the same time. There's a reason it's happening at the same time. So this BPA is all part of this no gender agenda and also it's part of the depopulation agenda. Keeping on the same theme of transgender, we're going to move to a story now about transgenderism and political correctness. This is in the Scottish Daily Mail. Censor courses in case they're transphobic, lecturers told. Universities are ordering academics to delete all material from their courses which could be considered transphobic in a drive to appease equality campaigners. At least a dozen institutions have issued guidance to professors and lecturers stating that classes must not contain material which is discriminatory to transgender people, those who identify as another sex to the one they were born. Data published today lays bare the extent to which academic speech is being restricted on transgender issues in a potential breach of the law on academic freedom. Almost half of universities now have policies in place which regulate speech on the topic. Last year, the proportion was a third. One institution, City University of London, has even banned lecturers from using terms such as mate, guys. Well, I use guys all the time. Guess I'd be in trouble if I went there. Mind you, that would be a good thing. Sir or madam, because it might upset transgender students. Many universities ban all forms of transphobia, while others attempt to limit discussion or insist students use gender-neutral pronouns such as they or they. Is it they or they? Well, I don't give a shit. You won't hear me using it. The university said the policy is aimed to make courses more inclusive of transgender students. The number of transgender people in the population is minuscule. It's not about rights for transgender people. It's about limiting freedom of speech. And the constant focus on transgender is what I referred to in the pilot episode of Pay-Per-View. Predictive programming, which is putting something in front of people enough times so that the subconscious has downloaded it enough times so that it feels more familiar to people. Findings were uncovered by online magazine spiked as part of its annual free speech university rankings, otherwise known as FSUR. The report authors said the vast majority of transgender-related speech regulation was imposed by the universities rather than by students' unions. The instructions for avoiding transphobia in course content have been given to lecturers at a number of elite Russell Group universities, including Leeds, Southampton, King's College, London and Cardiff. Others include St Andrews, Sussex, Bath, Glasgow, Caledonian, Liverpool, Hope, Oxford, Brooks, Aberystwyth and the University of the West of England in Bristol. Under the Equality Act, all institutions have duty to ensure transgender students are not discriminated against. FSUR coordinator Tom Slater said, In some of our most esteemed universities, supposed citadels of free thinking and scientific endeavour, administrations are demanding that debate about transgenderism be shut down and courses be cleansed of un-PC material. How any course about, say, biology can coexist with this is unfathomable. Does anyone remember? I wasn't around at the time, obviously. Anyone remember when universities used to be a place of free debate? You used to have students, like in the 60s, for example, who used to campaign for freedom of speech. Now you've got students campaigning against it. Anthony Gleans, professor of politics at the University of Buckingham, said imposing such rules on lecturers on what they can say about transgenderism risked breaching the 1988 Education Reform Act, which guarantees academic freedom. Well, as much as there is academic freedom anyway... This is outrageous, he added. 
It comes after feminists, including Jermaine Greer and Linda Bellos, and scientists such as fertility pioneer Lord Winston, were banned by union officials from speaking at student events because of concerns they have raised about transgender issues. You see, this is the thing. Support feminists, that's what the political correctness and progressives say, unless they are talking against something else that we support. Because they believe in freedom, you see. Campaign group Stonewall said trans people face huge levels of abuse every day. We welcome institutions that create inclusive environments and take a stand against transphobia. Inclusive environments in this context means anybody that's saying either what you want them to say or nothing that you don't want them to say. Almost one ban per week is being imposed on offensive material. Events or speakers at universities, according to FSUI, it found that 81 bans have been created in the past three academic years. 81 in the past three academic years. Equal to almost one for every week in term time. This is the ludicrous level that political correctness and the demonization of free speech is getting to. The only way to stop that is to stand up against it and say what you think, regardless of whether it's perceived to be political correct or not. That's the only way we're going to bring an end to this. Going back to the, going back to the topic of fertility, there's a story in the Telegraph. Ibuprofen in pregnancy could harm fertility of future daughter. Taking ibuprofen during pregnancy can make a future daughter infertile. Research suggests the study of human ovarian tissue is the first evidence that exposure to the common painkiller taken by one in three women during pregnancy could damage the fertility of future offspring. Fetuses exposed to the drug saw dramatic loss to germ cells which form follicles determining how many eggs a woman will be able to release in her lifetime, the research found. Taking the tablets for just two days during pregnancy was enough to result in fertility problems in subsequent female children born, the French study shows. And even if women stop taking the painkiller, the damage is irreversible, scientists warned. The research was carried out on fetuses in the first trimester of pregnancy. But scientists said taking the anti-inflammatory drug during the first six months could reduce the store of eggs in the ovaries of future daughters. Lead author Dr. Saravine Mazel Guito at Ainserum in Rene said, Baby girls are born with a finite number of follicles in their ovaries and this defines their future reproductive capacity as adults. A poorly stopped initial reserve will result in a shortened reproductive lifespan. Early menopause or infertility, all events that occurred decades later in life. We found that two to seven days of exposure to ibuprofen dramatically reduced the germ cell stockpiling human fetal ovaries during the first trimester of pregnancy and the ovaries did not recover fully from this damage. This suggests that prolonged exposure to ibuprofen during fetal life may lead to long-term effects on women's fertility and raises concern about ibuprofen consumption by women during the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. Scientists said shorter courses of treatment of less than two days were less likely to result in damage to the ovarian reserve. It is estimated 3 in 10 women take ibuprofen in the first three months of pregnancy. The NHS advises pregnant women to avoid the drug during the first six months because it has been linked to an increased risk of miscarriage. If pain relief is required, paracetamol is advised with the lowest effective dose for the shortest time possible recommended. Pregnant women are categorically told not to take ibuprofen in late pregnancy because of an increased risk of complications. The study, which involved researchers from the Universities of Edinburgh and Copenhagen, involved used samples from 185 aborted human fetuses aged between 7 to 12 weeks. Then they cultured the ovarian tissue in the laboratory and exposed part of the tissue to ibuprofen while the second part was not. 
The research found that ibuprofen crossed the placental barrier with the fetus exposed to the same concentration of the drug as the mother. Tissue exposed to the drug for a week had approximately half the number of ovarian germ cells. Dr. Mazel Guito said, We found there were fewer cells growing and dividing, more cells dying, and a dramatic loss of germ cell numbers regardless of the gestational age of the fetus. Significant effects were seen after seven days of exposure to the drug, she said, with cell death seen as early as two days after treatment. This is the first study to look at the effects of ibuprofen on the ovarian tissue of baby girls and the first to show that ibuprofen can cross the placental barrier during the first trimester of pregnancy, exposing the fetus to the drug. The implications of our findings are that just as with any drug, ibuprofen use should be restricted to the shortest duration and at the lowest dose necessary to achieve pain or fever relief, especially during pregnancy. Other experts said the findings were concerning but said more research was needed to investigate the long-term consequences of ibuprofen intake. Dr. Dan Hallcutt, Senior Lecturer in Pediatric Clinical Pharmacology, University of Liverpool, said this report may concern mothers with daughters who have used ibuprofen early in pregnancy, but it is too soon to tell if this is a finding that will affect a child's future fertility. For women who are pregnant, the use of any medicine should ideally be discussed with a suitable healthcare professional to work out your own personal potential risks and benefits. Well, I said in the first episode of pay-per-view, pharmaceutical medicine, is to be avoided. It's not there to heal us, it's there to have the effects on us that are called side effects, which are actually effects every bit as much as the effects of drugs are advertised for. I don't think we can trust any pharmaceutical alternative methods of healing are far more effective and cutting-edge methods of healing. Mainstream medicine is lagging quite some way behind some of the cutting-edge methods of healing that are called alternatives. We should have both options equally open to us. Rather than having alternative methods of treatment demonised and attempted to be discredited and limited in terms of permission for promotion of alternative methods of healing. And if all the healing technology and medicine and healing methods were open to us, we would have a lot more healthier world and a lot more people would still be alive that die unnecessarily when they could be healed and kept alive. And I'm not saying the people that make these drugs we all know this, and on the lower levels of the pharmaceutical companies, they won't have a clue about any of this, but in the shadows, they know exactly what they're doing. And this, of course, given that it's about fertility, plays into the depopulation agenda, which I've talked about already in this episode of pay-per-view. If you're a tiny global elite that wants to control the world, then you don't want a healthy, sharp-minded, sharp-thinking population. You want the complete opposite of that, as much as you can achieve. So that's why we have the world in terms of health and people's state of being mind and body for so many people that we have when it could be when it could be so different right changing the subject very interesting article here about political correctness and what have become known as generation snowflake or as i've seen them described generation jelly this is in the daily mail snowflakes they're today's fascists jewish writer stephen pollard says there's nothing funny about the march of the pc brigade Last weekend, I, along with many around the world, commemorated Holocaust Memorial Day. As editor of the country's leading Jewish newspaper, Jewish Chronicle, it is a memorial of particular significance. Through editing the newspaper, I am confronted daily with the legacy of that unique evil, including the suppression of debate, the distortion of truth, and even the burning of books to the heart of that terrible chapter in our history. 
I know too that the Third Reich's totalitarian impulse, that only one type of question and one type of answer are legitimate and all else must be extinguished, is far from unique because repressive regimes the world ever continue to ban freedom of inquiry and freedom of expression. We must be on our guard. You might wonder then what Friday night's attack on Tory MP Jacob Rees-Mogg as he attempted to give a talk to students has to do with this or last week's decision, now reversed in the face of near-universal outrage by Manchester Art Gallery to remove a pre-Raphaelite painting featuring mild nudity, Hylas and the Nymphs. These are both an attempt to silence a view because it offends some people. It is for good reason that a new word entered the Oxford English Dictionary last month. A snowflake is an overly sensitive or easily offended person. When the snowflake generation seeks to silence an MP because they disagree with him or prompt an art gallery to remove a painting because someone might be offended by the new depiction of a woman, they believe they have right and morality on their side. But theirs is a dangerous delusion because free speech and the offence which can come with it is the bedrock of freedom itself. As I've said in both episodes of pay-per-view so far, without freedom of speech there can be no other freedom. The snowflakes are becoming an avalanche, barely a week now passes without a fresh demand that they be protected from some form of supposedly offensive behaviour in, in the name of morality and decency. We are now witnessing our own version of Newspeak, in which a form of cultural fascism masquerades as care and concern. Last month, for example, Netflix started to show the 1990s sitcom Friends. You might think it is a harmless piece of nostalgic escapism, but according to some people, it is in fact a disgusting litany of racism, sexism, homophobia and yes transphobia. Ross didn't like the idea of his son playing with dolls, sexist, Monica was fat shamed, sexist, Chandler called his drag queen father by his male birth name transphobic and the characters were all white, racist. Often the offence taken isn't even theirs, they are as it were offended vicariously. Often you find that with political correctness it's not actually the target of the alleged political incorrectness or, or alleged offence, it's other people who think they should be offended by it. In 2015, students at the University of East Anglia banned a Mexican restaurant from handing out sombreros at the Freshers' Fair because it was a form of cultural appropriation that caused offence to Mexicans. Not, of course, that any Mexicans had actually been offended. The Snowflake students were offended on their behalf. This is of a piece with the insistence in recent years that university campuses be safe spaces where students should be protected from the traumatic risk of encountering anything with which they might disagree or take offence. And this isn't just about student politics, it is affecting academia itself. What this is doing is getting people, especially young people, but people in general, who are of this safe space, political correctness, snowflake, jelly-like mentality, is it's having the effect of making them look to authority to save them, protect them from what they fear and from what they find uncomfortable. And if you can do that when they're young, then you've got more chance of them thinking like that throughout their life. Last year, it was revealed that some Cambridge University lecturers had started issuing trigger warnings about Shakespeare plays in case students were upset by discussion of sexual violence. And theology students at Glasgow University received warnings before watching reenactments of the crucifixion in films during a lecture on how Jesus had been depicted on screen. Why do a course when you know that you're going to be triggered by the content of the course? Don't do the course. And if you choose to do the course, then it's your own fault. You've got your, you've got yourself to blame. You chose to do it. I mean, the agreement to do the course is the agreement to be exposed to the, the potentially triggering material. 
Still more ludicrously, at last year's National Union of Students Women's Conference, attendees were asked to use jazz hands instead of clapping. As the NUS Women's Campaign put it, some delegates are requesting that we move to jazz hands rather than clapping, as it's triggering anxiety. Please be mindful. God help the poor anxious souls if they ever go to the theatre or a concert. Exactly. But there is a far darker side to it than mere idiocy. If we close our minds to ideas that upset us the long-term consequences that our minds will atrophy, we will no longer be able to think for ourselves exactly. And this is being manipulated as well. In universities, students will go to a guidance counsellor in the university for a, a general reason. They might go to see a guidance counsellor. It could be a relationship. It could be results are not so good. It could be pressure of deadlines for essays, etc. And they'll go to see the guidance counsellor and they will be given drugs to deal with it. Instead of actually talking through it, which is the way it should be done, they'll be given drugs to deal with it. After further consultation and further stages, they'll be given drugs to deal with the issue. And over time, this will result in the mentality that is expressed in the mentality of the social justice warriors and the extreme reactions that you see if you go on YouTube and type in progressive rant or social justice warrior rant or words along those lines. So it's being manipulated and I feel that, I mean it is called pay-per-view so let's give my view. This constantly growing list of genders people are being given to choose from and kids are being given to choose from in school as part of the preparation for getting kids to accept the idea that they could be fluid gender, which I've talked about that before, where that leads the end of gender. I feel that some of the genders and the pronouns that we're given to choose from, I mentioned that earlier, we're told we have to refer to people with the correct pronouns. It's an ever-growing list, and I feel that part of the reason for that is, is to catch people out. I think it's actually being done in part to catch people out so that they will then be told oh you're offensive or, or you've offended me or you can't say that you've got to say this and so it gets people constantly told they can't say that they can't say this without these endless terms there's much less chance of being offensive therefore you can't be told that you're being offensive and so there you don't get this culture of people being told you can't say this, you can't say that, and freedom of speech diminishing. So I think that one of the reasons why it's an ever-growing list is to catch people out so that scenario can happen. The article goes on. We are seeing the stunting of debate, the closing of minds. This is a very good point. A lot of these social justice warriors and progressives and people who campaign against political incorrectness and offensive material, they actually sat down with someone who could give them a proper debate, they lose quite comprehensively. So they resort to shouting and going into the rants and everything and, and campaigning in the way that they do. The article goes on. Take the fury over a seminar held by Nigel Bigger, Regius Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at Oxford, an expert in his field, who has suggested there might have been some positives to the British Empire. For doing precisely what academics are supposed to do, thinking he's been attacked in a series of open letters as an apologist for colonialism. See, now this is a point as well. You've got progressives saying you have to take responsibility for colonialism. You've got to take responsibility for what your country or a group of people did in the past because you were the same skin colour as them, you were from the same culture as them. Well, my question is why? Why would I have to? Why would anyone else alive today have to. Nobody alive today was around at that time. 
So why should we take responsibility for it? Because we didn't do it. So the idea that our ancestors did it, therefore we should take responsibility for it, is ridiculous. The article goes on. So it was right that the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford University, Professor Louisa Richardson, should spell out why free speech and thought are so vital on campus. In a talk, Professor Richardson said she had many conversations with students who were upset. They had tutors who expressed a view with which they disagreed on homosexuality. And I say, I'm sorry, but my job isn't to make you feel comfortable. Education is not about being comfortable. I'm interested in making you uncomfortable. If you don't like his views, you challenge them, engage with them, and figure out how a smart person can have views like that. Work out how you can persuade him to change his mind. Says Professor Richardson. I don't necessarily agree on the change in mind part. What Professor Richardson says about having a debate and engaging in a debate, absolutely. That's what I was just saying. That's what we should do. You can guess what happened next. The Students' Union offered emotional support to anyone who had been being made uncomfortable by her words. More than 2,000 students attacked her in a vitriolic open letter. And Professor Richardson then issued a clarifying statement. Well, I hope Professor Richardson did not include an apology in that statement. We should remember how, in his novel 1984, George Orwell coined the word newspeak to describe the language used by a totalitarian state that removed the capacity for individual thought and turned words' meanings on their head. Something else about newspeak is that we think in words, we think in images as well, but we think in words. Once you reduce the language available over time, and you've got the text speak as well, that's all part of this, but talking about political correctness. You are reducing, over time, the amount of words to describe your own thoughts, never mind your own opinions. In Newspeak, they didn't have a word meaning freedom, so how can you talk about how you must have freedom if there is not a word left in the Newspeak language that means freedom? There isn't a word left that means freedom. How can you talk about it? This is the point of it. And also, George Orwell brilliantly said that Newspeak's language was the only language in the world whose vocabulary gets smaller every year. Constantly, language is being limited, and Newspeak words didn't have the ability to express detail and meaning. They were bland words. Language is so important. And that's why it's being targeted. The article goes on. In Orwell's dystopian world, the party used slogans such as war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Satire, yes, but a warning also. Well, not satire for everybody, in terms of people believing that. Demands that only one form of thought is permitted, and that anything which deviates from it is offensive and should be banned are profoundly dangerous. They pretend to be about care and concern but are in reality a form of intellectual totalitarianism. Without offence or without upset there is tyranny. Absolutely. Brilliant article there from Stephen Pollard. But what I find interesting about this article is not just the article itself, is the fact that Stephen Pollard is editor of the Jewish Chronicle and I've mentioned before about how Zionist hate groups are fundamentally part of this demonization of freedom of speech. They go around attacking anybody who exposes the Rothschilds, the top of the global elite that I've spent 10 years talking about, and the Rothschilds secret society network, ultimately, within the global web of manipulation, called Zionism. I call it, and I've seen it called, Rothschild Zionism, to point out who's really behind it. Revisionist Zionism is another name for it. And Zionism is used via Israel to slaughter and torture and commit genocide against an entire nation in Palestine. 
And with Donald Trump in power now, who is possibly America's most Zionist president ever, Israel is going to be allowed to get away with it. And they are being allowed to get away with anything. Whenever anybody points that out in a public way, the Zionist anti-hate hate groups are on them. I call them anti-hate hate groups, and that's because I've seen them referred to as that. And also because they, they act with hate when they're trying to stop people or groups having a platform to speak just because they're criticising Israel, criticising the Rothschilds or exposing the Rothschilds who are behind Israel. They totally own Israel and who are behind Rothschild Zionism. It's not about Jewish people, not ultimately. Vast amounts of Jewish people who oppose Zionism go on marches against it and have organisations created to protest against Zionism. It's about using Jewish people as a cover so that anybody who criticises Israel and the Rothschilds can then be labelled as racist because they're criticising Jewish people when they're not. They're criticising the actions of Israel because of the Rothschilds. And Rothschild Zionism is massively influential in deciding the foreign policy of the West. Whenever anybody challenges Zionism or whenever anybody's saying anything that the Zionist groups don't want people to say, off they go trying to shut them down and stop them having a platform. And Stephen Pollard is editor of the Jewish Chronicle, writing this article in the Daily Mail, the Mail on Sunday. And Stephen Pollard was asked on Twitter by the brilliant Richie Allen of the Richie Allen Show. Richie said, Hi Stephen, I don't expect a debate on here, but can you confirm that free speech and freedom of thought also applies to revisionists and satirists, however unpalatable you might find their views? This is in reference to the article that he wrote, which I've just read out. Stephen Pollard said... I do not believe Holocaust denial should be a crime. I've written repeatedly about this. I agree with that myself as well. I don't think that it should be a crime to challenge the Holocaust. Not saying that I agree with Holocaust denial. I don't. But it shouldn't be a crime to do it, is what I'm saying. Stephen Pollard says, In my view, the Jew haters who propagandise this should be exposed as liars and held up to the contempt they deserve. And Richie made the point in response that not every person who denies the Holocaust is a Jew-hater or anti-Semitic, which is true. And it's interesting that Stephen Pollard says, as part of his Twitter bio, as they call it, the Rothschilds control banks, and in truth, they control the global financial system. And they are behind the manipulation of wars. The actual line is, I leave banks and wars to the Rothschilds. So it's interesting that someone who is editing the Jewish Chronicle should write an article about freedom of speech and I agree with what he says in the article but it's interesting that you've got the Rothschild Zionism which is behind the exploitation of Jewish people to serve its own agenda and to use that as a cover for attacking people who were saying things that need to be said about Zionism and the actions of the Rothschilds on the subject of political correctness, I mentioned earlier that a Manchester Museum had taken down a painting, Hylas and the Nymphs, and this is an article about that in The Guardian. Gallery removes naked nymphs painting to prompt conversation. It is a painting that shows pubescent naked nymphs tempting a handsome young man to his doom. But is it an erotic Victorian fantasy too far, and one which, in the current climate, is unsuitable and offensive to modern audiences? Manchester Art Gallery is asked the question after removing John William Waterhouse's Hylas and the Nymphs, one of the most recognisable of the pre-Raphaelite paintings from its walls. Postcards of the painting will be removed from sale in the shop. 
The painting was taken down on Friday and replaced with a notice explaining that a temporary space had been left to prompt conversations about how we display and interpret artworks in Manchester's public collection. Members of the public have stuck post-it notes around the notice giving their reaction and they feature a photo of one of these notes where it says, good subject for debate but please put it back and analyse the painting in context. That's exactly what should happen. Instead of feminists and political correct zealots trying to get it removed because it offends them, how about we ask the question, why are there so many naked children in, naked underage girls in paintings and artwork? Why? And then we've got a debate. Then we might learn something. That's far more effective, I think, than just getting rid of something. And the whole point about analysing in context, that's what, as I've said before, political correctness, zealots and feminists, etc. don't do. They don't look at things in context. It's black or white. The article goes on. Claire Galloway, the gallery's curator of contemporary art, said the aim of the removal was to provoke debate, not to censor. It wasn't about denying the existence of particular artworks. The work usually hangs in a room titled In Pursuit of Beauty, which contains late 19th century paintings showing lots of female flesh. Galloway said the title was a bad one, as it was male artists pursuing women's bodies and paintings that presented the female body as a passive decorative art form or a femme fatale. For me personally, there is a sense of embarrassment that we haven't dealt with it sooner. Our attention has been elsewhere. We've collectively forgotten to look at this space and think about it properly. We want to do something about it now because we have forgotten about it for so long. Ganaway said the debates around Time's Up and Me Too had fed into the decision. The removal itself is an artistic act and will feature in a solo show by the artist Sonia Boyce, which opens in March. People can tweet their opinion using hashtag MAG Sonia Boyce. The response so far has been mixed. Some have said it sets a dangerous precedent while others have called it po-faced and politically correct. The artist Michael Brown, who attended the event where the painting was taken down, said he was worried the past was being erased. I don't like the replacement and removal of art and being told that's wrong and this is right. They are using their power to veto art in a public collection. We don't know how long the painting will be off the wall. It could be days, weeks, months. Unless there are protests, it might never come back. Brown said he feared historical paintings were being jettisoned in favour of contemporary ones. I know there are other works in the basement that are probably going to be deemed offensive for the same reasons and they're not going to see the light of day. Galloway said the removal was not about censorship. We think it probably will return, yes, but hopefully contextualised quite differently. It is not just about that one painting, it is the whole context of the gallery. Waterhouse is one of the best-known pre-Raphaelites, whose Lady of Shalott is one of Tate Britain's best-selling postcards. But some of his paintings leave people uncomfortable, and he has been accused of being one step away from a pornographer. Reviewing the 2009 Royal Academy of Arts show devoted to Waterhouse, the critic Wildemar Janacek wrote of a painting showing the death of St Eulalia, a 12-year-old girl. I did not know whether to laugh, cry, or call the police. Well, the point is, whatever people think of it, it's art. One of the characteristics of art is that it sparks debate and people have different opinions about it and it's far more effective to debate the artwork as I said just now and as the person who wrote that note that I mentioned just now said that you just get rid of something you get rid of something you can't learn anything you can't have a debate about it it's just gone rather than looking at it and asking questions about it and seeing it in its true context I'm going to finish pay-per-view today with a story about smart technology, which I've talked about on pay-per-view before. This is in the Daily Mail. 
Now it's the nanny house, NHS, to design healthy homes with smart sensors that badger you to go off the sofa. A new NHS initiative will force families off the sofa and into better habits by using smart homes. The radical healthy homes will see people being monitored by their GPs digitally, meaning they don't even have to leave the house. The new homes will have movement sensors and other technology linked to a computer that will send results directly to GPs and hospitals. The new plans are being rolled out across the country and will see housing developers asked to embed smart technology throughout new homes. This will allow monitoring of people with health problems. GPs will even be able to flash health and exercise tips up on screens if activity levels fall. See, this is the way they sell us smart technology and the global agenda in general. They sell us the benefits, or at least the alleged benefits, as if that's why it's ultimately being done. And on one level it is. I mean, GPs recommending this and this will have no clue what it's really about. But in the shadows, they'll know exactly why it's being done. And it's a far more sinister reason. It's being done to add to this wireless network of smart technology called the smart grid or the cloud, as I've talked about before on pay-per-view. And adding to radiation within the home, which is already present in many homes from smart technology and Wi-Fi and smart meters, etc. And it's also contributing to the depopulation agenda and also about surveillance. Professor Sir Malcolm Grant, chairman of NHS England, told The Telegraph, the Healthy New Towns project is coming up with new and exciting ideas for healthy living and we want to make sure everyone benefits. If the big house builders join us, it means that millions of people across the country, as well as their children and grandchildren, could be living happier, healthier lives in the towns and villages of the future. The new scheme will let the NHS badger millions of people towards better choices. It will also allow medical professionals to recommend weight loss and stop smoking centres to patients. The ideas are part of a drive to find new ways to encourage people to be healthier and more active. Some of the methods already used include offering supermarket shoppers discounts for hitting weekly step targets, free bikes with new homes and the creation of outdoor urban assault courses. Early examples of the project have seen 65,000 homes affected. In Bicester outdoor gyms, which act as human power stations, will see people use treadmills to charge mobile phones. Excited health officials, clueless health officials, believe that they can take advantage of the government's ambitions for one million new homes and incorporate the smart homes into them. The software used in the homes will also help to safeguard the elderly with alerts sent if there are changes to their routines. Thousands of patients with heart conditions have been given free devices, allowing them to send regular test results directly to their GP, instead of having to attend their surgery. Researchers found that those given their mobile devices have their risk of stroke. Health experts are hopeful that initiatives could reduce pressure on GPs and hospitals. See now, I'm not saying there are not any benefits to smart technology and other technology that were given, but it's understanding the agenda and once you know the agenda you can see both sides to each story and you have the context and the coordinates to make the connections which is what pay-per-view is all about and speaking of which that's it for this week i look forward to doing it next week i hope you enjoy it i look forward to continuing to place news headlines and events in their true context so the bigger picture can be seen so until next time, goodbye.